Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode of New Books in History. I'm one of the hosts on the channel, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I am very excited today to be talking to Dr. Werner, um, who has written a book entitled Repetition and International Law, published by Cambridge University Press this year, 2022. Um, Dr. Wouter Werner um, has examined through this book the workings of repetition across different practices of international law. He links these practices to all sorts of examples that really illuminate how repetition functions, uh, looking at religion, theater, film, um, and a variety of other things, building on functional areas of international law um, and explaining how repetition is used to connect things that may not otherwise make sense as connections, um, is used to explore things that haven't happened yet or couldn't happen, um, and is generally a fascinating exploration of both something that's incredibly concrete in a lot of ways, written text on paper, but also incredibly conceptual and very difficult to pin down, including things that have to remain absent or unspeakable or unimaginable. So it was a fascinating book um, to look at something that may often be taken for granted. Um, One of the things I'm going to be asking a lot about are things that we see on paper and don't really think about. Why is something called a manual? Why is something phrased in a particular way over and over and over again, such that we may have gotten used to it? And actually examine, wait a second, what's happening here? So I'm very excited to welcome Dr. Werner to the podcast. Thank you very much. I'm very happy to be here. So I was wondering if you could start off a bit introducing yourself and particularly the background that you bring to this book that combines so many different ways of thinking and disciplinary strands. Okay, yes. Um, So um, as you already introduced me, my name is Wouter Werner. I'm um, a professor of international law at the Free University in Amsterdam, where I teach courses in the field of international law generally international peace and security law, uh, and law and film. Um, And in addition, I'm supervising uh, teams participating in moot court competition, and I've also set up kind of an alternative moot court um, uh, event, um, which we may talk about uh, later on in the the interview. Um, My research, I'm I'm part of a group of uh, fantastic people who work at the intersection of law and anything else you can imagine. So there are people working on law and linguistics, um, international law and political science, international law and um, architecture, international law and tourism, international law and film. So I I, uh, am very happy to to be in this crowd of people and to draw inspiration from uh, from their work. So that's what what helped me also to, to sometimes add uh, new perspectives to things that we take for granted in international law. And this is exactly what you bring up in the introduction to your book, where you discuss that although the title of the book is Repetition and International Law, which are both pretty large concepts, you clarify the specific context that you're looking at, which, quote, context where repetition takes place in relation to something that is absent, unattainable or unspeakable. So can you explain a bit what you mean by this and why you've chosen this focus? Uh, yes, I can uh, give it a try. Um, and maybe it's best if I, if I try to do this through a concrete example. Um, in chapter four of the book, uh, I study what is called the Tallinn Manual, uh, which is a book or a manual with 140 Uh, 154 rules. And these rules, they they set out how international law applies to cyber operations. So that's kind of a common thing in international law that you have um, a report or a manual that restates how law applies to a specific uh, phenomenon. So an international group of experts worked hard to, to study and spell out what existing international law has to say about cyber. Now, this group of experts is is very outspoken about the status of the manual. It does not make law. And of course, they have to say that. 
It's a restatement, they claim, of the law as it already exists. And in this sense, it fits in a long tradition where experts are called in to produce these restatements of the law. So here we have an example of acts of repetition, right? They are repetition in the sense that they state again what is allegedly already out there. Now to your, to your question. So this is, okay, it's repetition. Now, why would you take the trouble of producing such manuals? Well, in the case of cyber, and then especially cyber warfare, which was the initial reason to produce the manual, the answer is pretty simple and straightforward. The reason to produce the manual was the absence of specific legal rules regulating cyber operations. No specific cyber treaties were signed, state practice was scarce, state practice was often concealed, and states tend to hide or just keep silent about their legal opinions. You don't have an opinion yours to build on. In other words, the reason to produce restatements, the reason to start repeating, was the absence of law. And this makes perfect sense, because if law would have been available, if it had been clear, if it had been tailor-made, what would be the point of stating it again in a non-binding report, right? So here you have the absence is a necessary condition for the practice to make sense. So the absence of specific law is precisely what gives the practice a point. But then the question is, okay, if law is absent, what is there to restate? If concrete cases are absent, what is there to restate? The restatement then, I argue, must necessarily be more than bringing in a copy of what is already out there. They seek to fill a gap of the absence by representing the law in a dual sense. So law is made present again through an act of repetition or restatement, but the law is also presented again to an audience in a very specific form, namely the manual. And if this audience, uh, courts or, or states, start to act upon the restatement as if they are correct, these restatements set in motion a process of law formation. And then I argue what happens is that the experts have repeated what they hope to bring about. And in that sense, they are a bit like in theater a dress rehearsal, where you rehearse what is yet to come, namely the first performance. So acts of repetition, and this is something that, that is also true, I think, in relation to customary law, to the sources of international law in, in, in preambles of Security Council resolutions, um, in, in relation to international law and trauma. Acts of repetition work sometimes as placeholders for that which is not there. Um, and that is why I, I uh, choose this, uh, this topic, um, to, to link repetition to this thing that is absent, should be absent, and yet is made present again and again through acts of, of repetition. And this is what's so fascinating. It's almost as if you've chosen the most tricky bit of repetition in international law where they interact, because it is the thing that we're almost talking around in a way. Um, and in terms of the, uh, that sort of seems to me one of the foundations of your book is that focus. But the other foundation is the novel titled Repetition. Could you introduce us to that and how you use it? Yes. Um, yeah. Um, so that's a repetition, uh, the, the novel by Søren Kierkegaard. And, um, well, just like he just titled, entitled it Repetition, but actually it's about way more complex problematique. I entitled the book Repetition in International Law, although it's actually about more than just repetition in, 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 the, in, the, in the straightforward sense, so to speak. Um, yeah, this, this novel, Repetition, um, it's almost impossible to, to introduce it because the best introduce, introduction would be, well, read it and see what it means for you and to you and then read it again. Because that's what I like about the work of Kierkegaard in general, that it's not meant to send you home with a clear message. Right? The books are puzzles, they annoy at times, they always intrigue, at least me, uh, because there's also something that seems to escape you. Uh, repetition, this novel, for example, um, is, is a short novel, reads at first sight pretty straightforward, but 
But then you discover it's, it combines a somewhat melodramatic love story with humor, with philosophical insights, and with very interesting reflections on the role of theater. And one of the, one of the insights that really inspired me for, for my own book was the distinction that, that can be found in this book between two forms of repetition. The first is called by the narrator recollection or repetition backward, and the other repetition or repetition forward. Um, so let me ex explain these two concepts because they lay the foundation of much what I, of what I try to do in, uh, in my book. Recollection is the idea that repetition is, is mimicking a pre-given ideal. In other words, what you try to do, you try to model the present after something that, that came before. Uh, Kierkegaard uses the, the example of Plato's uh, theory of knowledge, which claims that all knowledge is a recollection or remembering of pure pre-given forms. And these forms are what they are, and they remain untouched by the act of repetition. Um, and recollection, as Kierkegaard, I think, very nicely puts it, starts with a loss, because that what has been is lost. It can only be approached, but it, 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 it is out of touch with the present. Um, and you can find this in Kierkegaard's work, but also in a lot of other novels. And one of my favorite stories is one by Borges, the Aleph, which is about a man who is in love with Beatrice and the short story starts the day that Beatrice dies, Beatrice Viterbo dies. And then on that very day, he sees an advertisement on the street and he's totally upset by that because he realizes that time goes on, the world goes on. He says the universe is slipping away from her. And then he decides, I'm not going to accept this. So he says the universe may change, but not me. And what he then starts doing is constantly performing acts of repetition. So he visits her home in a ritualistic sense. Um, he um, deals with her pictures in a ritualistic sense, etc., etc. And of course he fails, right? He cannot fight the workings of time for the very reason that he himself changes because of the acts of repetition. And that brings me to the second form of repetition, uh, which Kierkegaard called repetition or repetition forward. And this form of repetition does not start with a loss. Why? Because it starts in the present. It, it starts with the act of repetition itself. Um, in the novel, this is, at least for me, best illustrated by the reflections on theater, where uh, the, the, the narrator reflects on what happens in, in theater. And he says the point of rehearsing is not to recreate exactly what you did before. The point of rehearsing is to make you be present in the moment. So that's the best performance where the actor is in the moment and that's why you repeat, you rehearse. So this is dialectical, right? So as, as Kierkegaard puts it, it, it's dialectical because it creates sameness and difference, continuity and change together. And to, to quote from the book, um, a quote that I, I repeat a number of times in my own book is the dialectics of repetition is easy for that which is repeated has been otherwise it could not be repeated but the fact that it has been makes repetition into something new so these two concepts taken from the novel repetition help me to make sense of a number of practices in international law um, for example, to stick to the theater metaphor, I use this to rethink my own participation in moot court competitions, where, if you, for those of you who are not familiar with this phenomenon, moot court competitions are regional or, or global competitions where students plea before a fictitious court on a fictitious case, and they compete against each other and then are assessed ideally on the basis of the same criteria. And I start wondering, what did I do when I trained the students to participate, to perform well? Did I try to approach a pre-given model as closely as possible? Did I, in other words, try to recollect? Because if I did, the students would start with a loss. 
So I started wondering, is there another way to rehearse, to train students? Can we rehearse in such a way as to open up for novelty, contingency, and be in the moment? So maybe you can come back to this point later, but, but for me, this was a really uh, an, an inspiration to think through what we do at, at law schools when we engage in, in these uh, mood court competitions. But also in the other chapters, this dialectics of repetition is one of the running gags that, that keeps coming back. Well, and I am um, going to come back to moot court, but I the, the first place it comes out that, again, speaks to the practical um, was you describe an experience you've had teaching law that I've myself had in a very small way, which is trying to explain the origins of customary law, um, because it is customary, because it's always been that way, but when actually did that happen? And wait, hang on a second, how can something have always been that way and yet also have a starting point? Um, and this is something that reading in your book having this debate inside your own head and then trying to figure that out and also still teach the curriculum given how important this is to the study of law um, really resonated so I think this is something a lot of people will find quite familiar so while we're on the topic of sort of the dialectics and of repetition could you help us ex- understand how you've made sense of this in your head or at least clarified the confusion yeah um, or attempted to clarify the confusion. Yeah, I, I think the, the, this is the strongest example of the of the dialectics of repetition, uh, the, the customary law, because customary law um, rests on an opinio juris, right? An expressed belief that a rule is already in existence. And that raises the, the uh, chronological paradox. How can a, a new rule of customary law ever emerge? Because customary law grows out of restatements, right? You express the belief that a rule is already in existence. Um, And I think this means that it's impossible to trace the origin of a rule of customary law. Um, And um, and so all we have are statements or restatements that a rule was already in existence. Um, these restatements present the origins as pre-existent, but we only come to know of their pre-existence through these restatements, right? They, they transform these origins something into something secondary constantly. And I think this has very practical consequences, and this also influences my teaching on the topic. Um, because most of the time, if you have a restatement of of a rule of customary law, the question that lawyers pose most often is, is the restatement correct? Does it really reflect customary law? Now, that might make sense. On the other hand, if you say, if there is no beginning to rules of customary law, the question might also be turned around, right? From where, from which point did states, courts, experts, etc. start to restate restatements? Um, And currently, we just started a PhD project precisely on this question where we examine the IOC articles on state responsibility, which is also a a report that claims to be restatements. But the question is not whether they truly reflect customary law, but rather, where do we find practices of citation? Where do we find others claiming that others were correct in claiming that this was a rule of customary law, right? So... I think this is also what, what you see in, in practice. There is now and then an examination of state practice and opinion juris, but way more often you go to the placeholders, you go to the restatement reports, you go to scholarly writing, you go to uh, treaties, you go to case law. So I think in examining customary law, one of the consequences of the analysis would be look at citation practices maybe more than at the traditional criteria for customary law which would be a different way of looking at customary law, but perhaps a clearer one, um, and certainly one that might make more sense to explain to students just coming into um, this practice. And this was a theme throughout the book, was looking at things that maybe we're used to dealing with, um, but once we investigate, maybe don't make a ton of sense, or don't seem to serve the purpose that we necessarily thought of initially. Um, Which brings me to perhaps my personally most interested part, given my own research. Um, But the section, the chapter you have on UN Security Council resolutions and the preambles. Um, Security Council resolutions are generally split into two sections for listeners who are not as familiar. Uh, The preambulatory clauses, which at first glance repeat things that already happened, that we already know. 
and then operative clauses, which actually say, and now this is what we're going to do next. And so when we talk about UNSC resolutions in the headlines, um, we tend to focus on the operative clauses because that's about the action that the parties have agreed on to happen next. But if you actually look at the text of a UNSC resolution, oftentimes way more space is devoted to the preambulatory clauses that, again, at first glance, simply seem to be repeating things we already know. And yet, as you show very convincingly, which things are chosen to be repeated is not an accident. And you argue that these preambles, in some ways, are used to make decision-making look like continuity, rather than perhaps more radical change. That might actually be true if you look just at the operative clauses. Um, So I was wondering if you could sort of illuminate this for us with an example of where preambulatory clauses, the repetition of things that we already know, is actually used to build forward in new ways, even by doing something that looks like just looking at the past. Yeah. Um, yeah, so there, there, there are several examples that, 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 that come to mind. Um, one, one thing that I... I'm intrigued by more and more is the regime that the United Nations is building around counterterrorism, which have a tendency to start with a very general resolution, like uh, 1373, the big resolution that some people called world legislation, which basically puts states on their far-reaching but also very general and open obligations. Um, it was generally considered to be a revolutionary resolution because um, it's, it's basically more world management than what you expect the Security Council to do if you look at their mandate in the Charter. Um, but the resolution itself claims to be nothing new. They recall previous resolutions, etc., like revolutionary texts tend to do more, more generally, I would say. They, they hark back to a history that authorizes this revolutionary act. But what is even more interesting is that after um, these these resolutions, and 1373 is just one example, um, what is also set in motion is the workings of all kinds of committees, subcommittees within the UN, but also outside the UN, like the Financial Action Task Force. And what they start to do, they start to explicate what the Security Council must have meant in these very general terms in the resolution. So they produce guidelines, interpretative guidance, best practices, etc. And then the Security Council in subsequent resolutions starts to welcome these guidelines, best practices, etc., start to encourage states to take them up, etc. Right. So here you see that there is what I call the restatement chain of the Security Council, whose resolutions are restated by expert bodies in often texts that claim to have no legal force, and then the Security Council restating those practices as the correct interpretation of its earlier will. So here you see uh, how continuity and change is, um, uh, is developed. Another example is is the the different responses by the Security Council to individual attacks, like the Madrid bombings, the London uh, attacks, uh, Istanbul, where time and again the Security Council tried to place them in a history that started at 9-11, as if this is one big history of of, uh, terrorism, where the Security Council um, jumps in to to act, to to fight these, uh, these acts of terrorism. Um, so th- th- these are some of, of, of the examples, and one of the things that I, I, I uh, that I found fascinating about this, to, to draw another analogy with uh, with the arts, is um, a, a film, Much Ado About Nothing. So it's a, the, the Shakespeare play that was uh, uh, put on film, and what you see in the beginning of the film is segments of the lyrics of a song played in, in the second act of the original Shakespeare play. Sigh no more, lady, sigh no more. Men were deceivers ever. One foot in the sea, one on the shore. And then the film starts, right? And I think this is a bit like what happens in a Security Council resolution. So things that were part of other documents, sometimes the operative part now reappear in the preamble as the frame through which you should read the rest of the text. And if this happens continuously, 
you get these these stories that you can can trace through preambles of uh, of security councils. As you said in the book, I believe genealogies in a way, lineages um, that link things that maybe weren't initially part of the same thing together. And this is what I think is fascinating about the idea of repetition building towards a thing in the future, that by repeating things in the past, you can then create chains that might not inherently be related otherwise, um, or may not have been intended to be related when they were first created, um, which is how you talk to go back to the counterterrorism example. Um, some of the resolutions you talk about in the lineage of them don't inherently make sense um, going together, except because of the way they've been repeated. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and what I also find interesting is that um, apparently for a body like the Security Council, this is very important to do. Um, if you just look at their mandates under the, the UN Charter, they could just decide relatively randomly if they think it's necessary to preserve international peace and security. But they feel the need and spend a lot of time narrating their own persona. So they appear as the author of these resolutions um, and a lot of time spending on a lot of time spent on creating this this historical continuity um, among Security Council resolutions and among Security Council resolutions and other agencies also referring to the Security Council resolution. So this sense of continuity apparently is very important uh, uh, for uh, to, to communicate what is in the, uh, in the Security Council resolutions. And this then comes back again to the Tallinn Manual that you spoke of at the beginning of the interview, where repetition is used to create continuity for a thing that we've not had to deal with before, cyber warfare. Um, and you've already spoken a bit about how repetition is used to kind of make sense of this absence in a way. Um, but I was wondering if you could go into that example a bit more, specifically the question that seems quite odd, again, when you're teaching about sort of big, important um, international law related to war, in my particular case, and you have to tell your students about this thing called the Tallinn Manual, and there's nothing else on the list of things that we're teaching them about that are called manuals. Um, it's a very odd term. It sort of jumps out on a list. And one of the reasons I found your book quite interesting was you explore that. So why is it called a manual? Yeah, that, that, is, that is a thing that, that keeps fascinating me. And it goes back maybe to a more general thing that um, lawyers, and I also try to, to encourage my students to literally look at what is on the paper. And not just to go to the abstract meaning that the words might have, but just to look at how things are presented, the paratext, as, uh, as linguists would call it. Um, and then one of the things that is interesting is this tradition of manual writing in the field of international humanitarian law. It's not the only field where manuals appear, but, but it, it is an established tradition there. Um, and... Most of the time, people just take this term for granted and immediately go to the questions, well, do the rules in the manual actually reflect customary law, whatever that may mean exactly, uh, or how is the group composed? Is there an equal representation of all the regions, etc.? And, and of course, these are important questions, no doubt. Um, but what is also interesting, I think, um, is that they take a specific form, and this form, I would argue, matters. Um, so what I try to do in this uh, in this chapter in the book um, is also to highlight what it means to present acts of repetition, restatements, in a particular material form, namely the, the manual. In order to do that, I compared manuals in the field of international humanitarian law, specifically the Tallinn Manual, to two other types of manuals that we are familiar with, namely consumer or product manuals, and uh, manuals of etiquette. Uh, and I think at first sight, this is a bit absurd, right? Uh, but, but if you delve a little bit deeper, um, it, is, it is interesting. To, just to give the, the example of the, the manuals of, of etiquette, um, what you can find there are, in a way, also restatements. So it is restated how you should 
behave in a civilized way in a particular community. At the same time, it's filled with instructions. So the restatements are also instructions, but they're not just instructions. They're also statements about what it means to belong to a particular social class or group. And all these things could be found in the Tulling Manual, right? So you belong to a group of law-abiding legal advisors or the military, what have you. That's very clear throughout the manual. It's, it's written also to build this identity. Um, it is a restatement, allegedly, of what is already out there. Um, and it's in the form of instructions. So it's rules that are there, right? And if you read the rules, they have a directive form. They're not factual statements. They, they take the form of directives. So all these elements are there. And what, is, what, what this means is that this all facilitates their being taken up as placeholder for that which is absent, namely the law that has not developed in this field. And this is what you see happening. So people start to refer to the Tallinn Manual as the shorthand for the thing that is not out there, namely the, the, the laws on, uh, uh, on cyber. And I think this particular manual form facilitates that. And the, the, the chair of the committee, Michael Schmidt, was, was very outspoken about this also. So he spoke about the product. He spoke about instructions. Um, it should be taken up. Um, and, and also the literal term manual, right? A, a book that you have at hand. So you can easily take it up and find the rules. So I think this, this material form uh, does matter a great deal. And this was what was so interesting, the comparison with etiquette books, showing that these types of books and I definitely would not have made the connection without the book but it does make sense that these are books that combine normative and interpretation right they're telling you what is okay and then what to do um, rather than doing one only one of those things Um, and that was quite interesting when it comes to thinking about how this sort of thing fits into international law Um, and I think I want to kind of poke at that a little bit this idea of the connections that you make that are unusual but makes sense we've already sort of seen a bit of them right the Shakespeare here and the idea of a dress rehearsal um so could you help us understand you talked a bit about at the beginning that you're in this great group of people that look at law in a lot of different ways how did you figure out which comparisons would make the most sense for which of your examples did was it systematic was it whatever popped into your head I mean how did you come up with these unusual connections uh, that's a difficult question. I think s- something in between systematic and just popping up in my head, I guess. Um, so what it, it all starts with a wonderment, right? So it starts with a wonderment. You say, okay, um, for example, the manual. So what does it mean to restate the law in, the, in this very particular form? And then you raise the question, so what is a manual to begin with? So you start investigating what, what a manual is, and then you bump into this long tradition of manuals in consumer products, and you bump into this tradition of manuals of etiquette. People point you at these, at these um, traditions when you present work. Um, and, and the same with, with the preambles, when, uh, when you see all these acts of repetition i think a lot of of people who, who read security council resolutions will recognize this well this is strange what you expect is a decision uh, but what you get is maybe at the end a few decisions but mostly recitals of of, of things that went before or that were set before or what have you um, and then you start wondering well is this something very specific for Security Council resolutions. And you start looking at other acts of international organizations, constitutions, and you go into history, you think, well, um, apparently it's very important to present these things with a preamble filled with deferral of authority constantly. So you go back to the Babylonian codes that we still have, and you find exactly the same patterns. Well, this is also a constant deferral of authority that, that, that takes place in these in these acts of, of repetitions in preambles. So it, it's it's not very systematic, um, but it's not totally random either. Something in between, I would say. Well, whatever it is, it definitely adds a lot of layers and textures to it. Um, I think this is a book that will make a lot of people think. No, um, thanks. That's that's very good to hear. That's what you hope. 
Well, and so I wanted to come back to something else you raised at the beginning that I think will definitely make people think, which is the idea of moot court. Um, and you talk about how it's a competition, um, there's fictitious cases, but also they're relatively set, right? And it's about competing in a particular way um, that may or may not develop all the skills that we want in our students. So I was wondering if you could go into a bit more detail about that. And particularly, you offer an alternative, a Brechtian way of rehearsing international law. What would that look like? And what sort of possibilities does interrogating how moot court works offer yeah. up to us? Um, yeah, this is, this is probably my favorite part of the book, at least for myself. Um, and I, I luckily I can draw an experience here because um, in November we had our first um, experimental Brechtian moot court uh, in Amsterdam with their teams from Indonesia, China, Zimbabwe, Rwanda, the UK and the Netherlands. And I did that together with my colleague Christina Schwebel from, uh, from Warwick um, where I could try out the ideas that I, that I put in the book. Um, so... What we did said so it is like a moot court as we know it in the sense that you uh, act as if you are in a courtroom. But that's about it when it comes to similarities. So, because in many ways the setup is very different. So, let me just go over a few things that that that, that are that are different. First, um, we organized it about uh, around a pending case before the ICC which is very different from traditional moot court competition cases, which are fictitious. Um, and that makes a difference because in a fictitious case, there's not really something at stake other than winning or performing well. And in our case, we took the Omar al-Bashir case where there were real political things, uh, um, real political stakes there. So we asked teams to act upon the assumption that Omar al-Bashir was handed over to the ICC. And while we were preparing, there was the military coup in Sudan. Uh, and we could integrate this into the, uh, into, the, into the mood court. The second thing that we did different from mood court competitions is that we mixed teams. So students from Zimbabwe would be in a team with students from China and a student from the UK and a student from Amsterdam, etc. Right? So... And that took out all the pressure on students or coaches or what have you to bring back the trophy home, because I think this is just disruptive of, uh, of, of a truly uh, learning experience. And then thirdly, we asked everyone who was present in the room to be included in the role play. So there were no onlookers. So in traditional mood courts, judges act as assessors and the audience is, is basically an onlooker. And what takes place is essentially competition revolving around the question who performs best according to pre-given criteria. And in our case, the judges were persona. So they were interviewed beforehand, they were videotaped, and we showed that to the students because it matters a great deal who is your judge in a particular case. You can um, base your strategy on that. The audience is also given a role, so they should listen, for example, as representative of victims groups or spokesmen of a regime, as the African Union delegate, as human rights activist, whatever. And at the end of the session, students were not scored or ranked, but instead we had a common reflection session where everybody could explain, so what happened and, and what, did it, what did it mean for you in your role as victim community, regime supporter, what have you. Fourthly, um, the mood court was meant to experiment, so not to fulfill pre-given criteria. The students were encouraged to try out different styles, so style was also really important. You, you, you use style for different purposes, and we encouraged them, well, try out this style, do it very passionate, do it very sober, and just reflect on what it, what it means for you and for the audience. Um, and that is important because the mood court was all about thinking about the audience. And in traditional mood court competitions, basically what you try to do is to score high in the eye of the judges. But in our case, teams had to think about the possible different audiences and you can't make everybody happy. So you have to choose. And especially in cases such as Bashir, lawyers could consider all kinds of strategies, including 
strategies of, of rupture. So you do not necessarily have to please the judges. You could profit from a confrontation with the judges. And this is ex exactly what happened. So at some point, the team was uh, dismissed. Was, um, and that was interesting because the moot court, in our case, doesn't stop when the teams leave the courtroom. Because after their pleadings, they have to develop a media strategy, including uh, a hashtag campaign. So what they might, what they do in court may very well be just a prelude to what really matters, namely uh, their media campaign. Then the final thing that we ask students to do is to write a reflection, and that's what currently is going on, uh, preparing some blog posts on to reflect on what this alternative way of, of moot court means to the students, but also to the teachers and our ideas about international law. Um, so this is what we have done in, in, in November in the theater in, in, in Amsterdam. Um, and well, we try to, to set it up again next year. And there's also uh, now an initiative to have this uh, experimental mooting in, in Rwanda for the uh, East African region. So um, these are some, some thoughts on, on what comes out of the book in, in terms of, uh, of teaching. It's fascinating to hear the ideas in the book play out in real life. Um, it's very cool that you got to uh, put that into practice. Um, and just to kind of hone in on a bit that I know comes out in the book, um, to finish up that example in a way, what is the purpose of repetition in this method of moot courting? Well, the, the, the thing is, and I go back to my, um, uh, my answer on, on the Kierkegaard novel, I think in uh, traditional moot court competitions, it's very much about recollection. So you try to mimic a pre-given ideal. What we try to do here is to rehearse in order to try out, to, uh, to let students be in the moment and to create something new, something unexpected, right? So if, if something goes wrong in a traditional mood court competition, that's a problem. And here, that's a great moment. So you have these moments of, of rupture and discomfort, which are taken up again in a common reflection. And then the next day, you rehearse it again and you take it up again. So that, that I, I probably, I'm not sure whether I would, would call it a method, but, but the idea of what rehearsing is, is fundamentally different. It's, it, it's actually the, the old opposition between recollection and, and repetition, I would say. I think that, I mean, it certainly creates clear links to Brecht's method of acting as well. So um, again, that link becomes to something unusual, makes a lot of sense. Um, so leaving behind your example of moot court, moving to the last section of your book, which focuses on film. Um, again, you mentioned that this has connections with the colleagues that you work with, um, and again, this is maybe in some ways an unusual connection, though I think a number of us probably use film to teach around issues related to conflict, if not international law particularly. So on this idea of the unspeakable, through the lens of repetition, how do you argue that film can help articulate and understand the unspeakable in ways that law cannot, but in ways that still helps us understand the context of international law? Yeah, so the, um, my, my starting point in all this was the preamble of the ICC statute, which speaks about unimaginable atrocities. And say, so, well, this is the reason why we need to have the, the International Criminal Court to respond to unimaginable atrocities. And I found this fascinating because I, I, my intuition was, but, but law cannot live with the unimaginable. Law cannot live with the unspeakable. And yet, it's that which gives law its purpose. Um, so these notions, I think, I, I, I are very to the point because they point to the fact that our vocabulary is insufficient to capture crimes such as genocide or crimes against humanity. And they also echo what trauma studies teach us, namely that these crimes rob victims of their language. Um, but then again, if, if you look, look up the, the ICC statute, so you have the preamble that speaks of these unimaginable atrocities, but then it, it can't stop there. So it has to translate that into something that it is not 
namely operational categories upon which a court can act and decide. And the unimaginable only appears in law in the form of moments of rupture. And I, I take these insights from Susanna Velman. Uh, and she gives the example of the witness in the Eichmann trial, who, the, the witness who fainted. And as the judges in the Eichmann uh, case argued, this moment shows that law can only tell part of the story and it should leave the unimaginable to, to others, such as artists. Um, and I found this, this intriguing because it echoed my experience when I watched a number of, of, of documentaries. And of course, art cannot imagine the unimaginable either. It cannot speak the unspeakable either. So it's not that law is unable to do it and art can do it. However, I think in art, there is more room to show what it means to be unable to speak, to be unable to imagine. And this is, I, I would argue, because art has room for ambiguity way more than the law has. Uh, where law seeks to clarify, of course, there's ambiguity in, in the law as well. Um, but, but at the end of the day, law is a binary system. Something is a legal category or is not a legal category. And arts has way more room for indecision, uh, where, for example, court cases have to come to a decision. So this is what I try to analyze in the, in the final chapter of my book, how films have attempted to show what it means to be unable to speak, unable to imagine. And this is very explicit in um, uh, Landsman Shoah, so this iconic uh, film on, uh, on, the, on the Shoah, which is all about the lack of language that comes with trauma, right? That's even in, in the start of the film made very clear that this is the, uh, the, the starting point, the impossibility to, to articulate what, what happened. Um, and this is, this is what I think he shows in, in, in a very impressive uh, way, what it, what it means to, to be unable to speak, to be unable to imagine. And it's also something that comes up in another documentary that I analyze, a completely different one, Ritty Pan's The Missing Picture, which is autobiographic about his life under the terror of the Khmer Rouge. But both films, I would argue, revolve around the presence of absence. So how absence in many forms manifests itself in landscapes, in buildings, in material, in persons. And what intrigued me, and that, that related back to the, the, the general topic of the book, is that both films relied heavily on reenactments to show the presence of absence, so the impossibility to imagine, the impossibility to speak. So I think um, combining these kind of films, artistic products with law to show the limits of the law and also where law shouldn't try to go, I would argue, um, helps understanding also why law on the one hand is informed by these unimaginable atrocities, is called upon to respond to them, uh, but also makes very clear what the limits of the law are to actually do this. That's a very succinct explanation. Thank you. Um, and to move to my last two questions, which are generally the same for all the people I get to interview, I know that reading this book, I encountered a number of things that were surprising to me, but you're the one writing it. So was there something particularly surprising that you found or discovered in the course of researching this book? This could be something that was included. Sometimes it's something that was found, but ended up not getting included. Um... Yeah, okay, so to, to, to start with the, the, the last, uh, something which did not make it into the book, but it, it's a text that I still have on my files, but never published, but I, I, I still was intrigued by it. This is an analysis of uh, the development of abstracts in international law journals. So uh, the, the repetition of the main text of the article and how it got up in, in all kinds of databases, etc. what it tells you about the acceleration of speed in the discipline um, and the growing marketization of, uh, of academic life. It didn't make it into the book, but I, I actually enjoyed writing it very much, but, but I, I couldn't make it fit in, in, in a proper way. Um, what did end up in the book and what, what still was a bit surprising to me is how much similarities there are between practices in international law, religious practices and artistic practices. Uh, because international law has developed, of course, into a specific and, and highly technical field and shaken off its religious foundations and 
takes pride in being a secular field, uh, rightly so, I would say. Um, it has developed its own vocabulary, which is markedly different from artistic vocabularies, happily so, I would say. And yet, when I zoom in on the way in which all these foundational questions are handled, dance around the parallels between law, religion, and art, I found striking. Um, and yeah, so this is not meant to delegitimize, delegitimize international law, but, but on the contrary, it helped at least me to get a better grip on this intangible thing that I think makes law both possible and, and utterly human. So it, 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 it gave me kind of a, a humanistic aspect on, on the practices of international law. Well, that brings me very nicely onto my last question, because I'm hoping that part of the answer you've already given. So my traditional last question is, what are you working on now or next? And I'm hoping that one of your answers is that you're going to publish that piece about abstracts. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. Then, uh, well, maybe I should. I'll, I'll, I'll revisit it. Um, and other than that, I'm, I'm uh, currently thinking of a new project. And, and one of the things that I'm considering, but I, I need to delve into it uh, deeper, but the, a bigger theme I want to work on for, for midterm, longer term, is the notion of the absurd in international law, which on the one hand is a very technical topic of treaty interpretation to be found in Article 32 of the Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties. Um, and on the other hand, it's um, an existential theme uh, explored by thinkers such as Albert Camus, Jean-Paul Sartre, uh, and, and uh, people like Samuel Beckett. And my intuition is that there is something in bringing these two strands of thinking together, this highly technical uh, way of law trying to expel the absurd. So if there is an absurd outcome of a treaty interpretation, we should do everything to prevent it. And on the other hand, the, the absurdity as, as a founding category in, uh, in uh, many philosophical and, and theatrical works. I'm not sure how to do it exactly, but my intuition is there, there is something interesting here. So I'm going to explore this for the coming month. Maybe it's a dead end, then I'll just stop. Uh, and maybe not, and then I'll continue. Interesting. Okay. Well, I look forward to seeing what comes out of that. Um, but in the meantime, listeners can go ahead and read your current book, which came out this year in 2022 by Cambridge University Press, titled Repetition and International Law. Dr. Werner, thank you very much for joining us today. Well, thank you very much for having me. It was a great pleasure.